Welcome to 2LO Rebooted, where we tell the stories of BBC design and engineering. I'm Bill Thompson. This is the fourth in our series of programmes from BBC Research and Development, exploring fundamental issues around the design of digital services and how we measure their impact. These programmes were recorded during the pandemic, when travel and sharing studios wasn't really possible in the UK, so the recording quality is occasionally variable. Hi, and welcome to the BBC R&D Human Values podcast series with me, Leanne Curlin, and my colleague, Ian Forrester. Over five episodes, we are unpacking the work we have done to create a design framework that is based on human values. Having looked at the framework, how it can be applied, and the underlying philosophy, we now turn to metrics. How can we measure the effectiveness of this approach? To help, we are joined by... Brian Suda, a developer and writer based in Iceland who runs a material conference. Founder and former CEO of Kickstarter, Yancy Strickler. David Jay from the Centre for Humane Technology. Solana Larson, editor of the Internet Health Report at the Mozilla Foundation. And Mark Sermon, also from the Mozilla Foundation. So, how do we start thinking about measurement? We are looking to adequately define success. So we're trying to move away from the metrics of tension, eyeballs, time spent, and understand what value looks like in this digital world. For that to happen, the two things need to occur. We need to define value before we can measure it, and then we need to transform that understanding of value in a way that we can adequately capture, measure it. A lot of startups and a lot of organizations, they start up start off with a on you know, on the idea that they're going to be they're gonna do the best for for the people and all of that this and the other. But VCs, the angels will sometimes ask, you know, or sometimes most of the time will ask, How am I gonna get my, my return on my investment? It's something that's kind of persisted and is driven by this notion of if I can get enough eyeballs and enough advertising, then I can definitely increase it to that value. David Jay, Head of Mobilization at the Center for Humane Technology. I think that, that within tech companies, there's really been a, over the past several years, there's been a coming to terms with this. Um, engagement has been baked really, really deeply into the culture of how technology is built. When a new startup goes to a founder or goes to an investor the graphs that they show because often you know early twitter early google they weren't making money early facebook they weren't they didn't have a graph showing they were making a ton of money they had a graph showing they were getting a ton of engagement um and showing that people are engaging intensely with your site are coming back to your site really regularly that's how you prove success that's how you get the resources you need to be successful and so um, really baked into really baked into the culture of technology is this idea that success looks like high levels of engagement. And it's only uh, as the systems get bigger and as their complexities begin to emerge that we really see some of these inevitable unforeseen consequences of optimizing for engagement coming out again and again and again. Whether it's misinformation, negative impacts on mental health, 
um, things like j- just the kind of small inability to decrease the capacity for people to focus on the things that matter in their lives. During COVID-19, which we're in right now, we see all of the numbers going up for content and things like that. And people perceive that to be a really good thing. But then a question, what is that detracting from somebody's life in terms of what are they not doing because they're spending more time with the content? But I think we should be really empowering people to have a healthy balance of technology in their lives. We shouldn't be aiming to increase in numbers. And this is where companies, when they're, they're fighting for attention, they will do anything by any means possible to make those numbers go up. And so we see dark UX practices coming into play. You almost want another value to be able to put literally side by side. In the same way as um, we have um, companies that are now f- more focused on the environment, there's other values that should be in front of the shareholders to go, we're doing well here, but our sustainability is dropping through the roof. We need to do something about this. And this is why the metric debate is so important, because having a metric to say, yes, we've got the value is going up, but all of our users, and I hate that word users, are unhappy, are not achieving any of their goals, and actually want to leave, but they can't leave. That's not a good situation to be in. That's not a good place. If I was an investor, I would probably reconsider where I invest. Mark Sermon, the executive director of the Mozilla Foundation, proposes a solution. Here's what I think is the trick in terms of coming up with a metric around, you know, what you're calling human values is to really say, what, what's the thing we want to measure in terms of the internet being helpful and, and good for humanity uh, in the way that we know what we want to measure uh, in terms of, say, CO2 reductions and you know, numbers of part, parts per million. That's the first trick, which is to be, you know, trying to, to come up with that metric of like, what are we all looking for? Is it privacy? Is it user satisfaction? Is it, you know, it, it's actually a very tricky thing to figure what that metric would be. And then the other next step is to take that metric and use it in, in a kind of a double bottom line way. And that to me is something if we could unlock that would be tremendously positive and a double bottom line is where you look at something like the financial bottom line and the environmental impact bottom line or the financial bottom line and a human rights bottom line. So could we have a double bottom line for, you know, an ethical social enterprise like Mozilla, but also for people like Google and Facebook where they're measuring not only the profitability, but also the human well-being factor, the human well-being metric. Um, and I think we could get to that kind of double bottom line thinking, which we've seen in other spaces. We might be able to really drive a very different commercial internet. The problem with the metrics is that they filter through every level of the organization. And ultimately, they start to filter through design practice. And this is where you talked about people wanting to leave, but they can't. And that is the whole crux of behavioral science and dark behavioral science patterns that have been brought in through design because designers want to make their products as sticky and as attention driven as possible. We see this when designers use behavioral science to tap into our primal fears and our emotions. They provoke anxiety, use techniques to trigger us, making it likely for us to return 
But when they even lose our attention, they resort to unethical means, dark patterns, become more subtle in their techniques to hook you, to trigger you and to keep you. And this all came out of the gambling industry. There's this analogy that I use. I might eat a cookie and I might enjoy it. For me to have another cookie, I've got to walk into the kitchen, open a number of drawers, get the cookie out, unwrap it and then eat it. And I've made that conscious decision to do that. I like the cookie. I enjoyed it. To have another one, I've got to go through all those steps. But if you sit next to me and you put it into my face, I'm not going to say no because it tastes good. This is a way in which taking that decision away, people are very likely to take the cookie because they enjoyed it. Why would they not want another one? It's our human nature. The problem is, as a society, we're not quick enough to implement regulations. The the example of the autoplay is, is fascinating because, yeah, it, it's you know, your example of the cookie and you have to consciously get up, do the stuff, go in the kitchen rather than someone just go, here's another cookie. It's right next to your mouth. Just all you have to do is just bite down. But I think the point you made also is that the law's always late to catch up. It's like the Wild West. It's like they just do whatever they want <laughs> and until they get caught. And then they say, oh, we're really sorry. The problem with the metrics, though, is that we create so much data every day, so it becomes really easy for companies to collect this data and start surveilling us, profiling us. It's so easy to collect that data. And in this fast-paced tech environment, this data becomes part of the quick, iterative and lean models of development. So we, we all talk about moving to understand people in more richer ways, it's not easy ways to understand people. It's not easy metrics. It's not there to be taken. It takes a long process to really understand data in more meaningful ways. Even just to understand human values, we spend 18 months of researching, iterating and validating thousands and thousands of people to reach a point where we had confidence that our data represented the population at large. Now we're going through that process again to turn the values into a format that we can measure. And it's a very long process, but it's so much more enriching to understand the value that we could potentially have and the value that we could demonstrate by characterising services by the values that they, they enable rather than the time that people spend with them. Solana Larson, the editor of the Mozilla Internet Health Report, explains how data was going to drive the internet health report. I think the, the ambition or the inspiration was to be able to do it in some kind of quantifiable way. But really, it's a mix of anecdotal and scientific. So it's ended up being more a compilation of research that shows um, different like snapshots of how the, the internet is affecting our world. So we know that hate speech is a problem online. What can we learn from looking at the research around hate speech or the solutions that are presented to, to make things better? For a lot of people, qual and quant metrics, yeah, they don't really think about it in this way. You kind of think, well, data's data. But actually, not all data is the same. And it might be worth going into a little bit about getting the right type of data. 
Brian Suda, owner of Optional.is, developer and author. And I think there's two, there's two types of sort of data that can be easily collected. It's the qualitative and quantitative. And the quantitative is those hard numbers like you know, session length or number of views, customers, etc. But the qualitative stuff you know, is more of the, how did you like our product? Please write less than 500 words or whatever it might be. That is much, much harder to sort of, you know, troll through and figure out uh, what did people mean? How, you know, when they say they liked it, what does that mean what they liked? Or, uh, and that takes a lot more time and effort. But, you know, you, you touched on the fact that maybe someone who, you know, read the content or watched the 30-second clip might not look good quantitatively, but if it made a huge impact in their life, qualitatively, uh, it's, a, it's a super important data point. We kind of talk about this digital exhaust, you know, just for me signing up for a service and clicking around, I've generated rows in a database. And that costs, I mean, that's, all, that's a sunk cost. It doesn't cost anything more for a company to look in that database and say, oh, we had X signups this month, and then start to plot that over a graph to say, like, our signups are increasing. So, and if you're just starting out and brand new, those metrics can be valuable. I mean, they're not, they are vanity metrics, but everybody's got to start somewhere. Once you're a mature entity, you know, like the BBC, who has been around for a while, there's expectations, there's quality, uh, then those sort of digital exhaust numbers that people are generating, you know, as a byproduct of their daily use, aren't as valuable. I mean, you've captured the UK market. You're not going to have more signups. You know, that is the population. So now you need to move to these higher level, uh, you know, psychometrics and these core values that you developed and start to dig deeper in those. And then the next phase after that is, okay, now we have a measure on how autonomous our audience thinks they are. What can we do to then increase that number? And then you continue, you know, you continue to monitor. And then after you've done some sort of intervention, you see, has the autonomy increased or decreased? So that's the other thing. It's a never, it's a never ending process. Once you have a number for, you know, growing in myself or exploring the world, you always need to continually be checking in on that number to see how you're impacting it or if it's sliding or changing, which is a long-term investment. And that's something that a lot of people, they're not necessarily afraid of, but they either maybe don't understand it or they don't have a budget for it. They're just a brand new company. We're just trying to you know, you know, make payroll next month or just meet, meet our deadlines. So it's, it's definitely something for a mature company the data that companies have access to is interaction data on your phones and it's so easily accessible because it's the data that we create every day so every click every link share even the time that you look at your phone that's really easy now what's harder is to understand what that data means the interaction data is almost vanity metrics and vanity metrics are essentially things that look nice but very shallow on the inside and that and it's not a place to say that quantitative measures and data isn't applicable and it doesn't have a place, but it will only tell you the number of times people did something. It doesn't really tell you what sits underneath that, why people did that. 
you are listening to the Human Values Framework podcast series from the BBC. I think the, the, the next thing that's interesting about what Brian starts talking about is is the average represents no one and people versus rows in a database. And I think that's quite an interesting one because it's almost like you don't, you're just looking at digits, you're not looking at the humans. And um, maybe there's something about data that just makes humans into digits and it doesn't really matter. But I think part of that is probably the way that we're, the way that the metrics work. They encourage just to focus on the metric rather than think a bit bigger and a bit more what those, you know, what those figures actually really mean. There's a, there's a really interesting kind of, well, I don't know if it's a theory or just kind of been proven out that when you take a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different ages and ideologies and shapes and sizes and you average them together, this sort of mythical average person doesn't actually represent anybody. Uh, and if you then design for that mythical average person, nobody ends up being happy. So people have started to come up with this idea of you know, creating these clusters. So you've got you know, over 65s, under 18s, and we start to uh, you know, personalize it a little bit more there. And now we started to in, you know, improve with machine learning, artificial intelligence, all these buzzwords, where depending on what things you click and what you view, we can start to create even more and more personalized uh, sort of entertainment or content then the problem ends up becoming you're not necessarily looking at these metrics or these people as people anymore you're just looking at them as rows in the database or what they've clicked on and sometimes that brings up even bigger ethical questions in the past when we've been working on projects people have you know our goal has always been you know engagement or the length of the session or how long people play or or engage with your product and someone just outright asked us, is that a good thing? You know, should be, people be you know, playing outside or staying, you know, playing with their families and children instead of using your you know, tools or applications or your content? So even the metrics that we're looking at, you also need to ask maybe even a bigger question of, is it a good thing that we are you know, capturing a bigger share of the market? David takes Brian's point about people and compassion and expands on it. This is a, a place where I have compassion for people is that when you do the kind of understanding and value-driven decision-making we're talking about, it's like the decisions are more expensive. It's, it's easy to make decisions with numbers, especially it's, it's really easy to make decisions if you're maximizing numbers. Um, and so if you want to be able to make a lot of decisions really, really efficiently, um, and, and, and you genuinely are okay not making those decisions that well, or like, like, like accepting the limitations of metrics, then like metrics might have a place. But I think that, um, that there are times when it's really necessary to say, look, if, if we're getting really, really efficient at making bad decisions, that's not going to lead us to a good outcome. Um, and I think that's, that's the, the, the myth of, um, metrics optimization a lot of the times is that if we just decide fast enough, we'll evolve our way to a good place. Um, and I, I think that, that we've seen how that, has deep, that thinking has deep flaws. 
I think there is an issue with measurement per se in that a number is never going to give you the whole meaning, the whole context. Unfortunately, we are in an age where data is pretty much free for companies. For them, it's these vanity metrics of look how many people, look how many eyeballs, look how much time. I think that those ethical points that Brian David touched upon really start to question the role of what those metrics are. We challenge Mark Sermon as the executive director of the Mozilla Foundation to give us some more examples. You know, we have examples from both directions of where social metrics and, and economic or financial metrics are applied together. And, and if they're simple enough, if you're clear enough on your intent, um, then I, I do think you can um, make decisions on a double bottom line basis. And so, the, I mean, the BBC already does it, I would argue, right, is, is you want to um, inform, educate, and entertain. And, and there's some loose metric of is the citizenry um, informed and educated. At the same time, is you know, you start to have more pressure to, to generate revenue uh, beyond license revenue, uh, you know, for the BBC. And, and people are sitting in a, in a management position than in a boardroom looking at the balance between the both. You know, you see similar things for us in, in balancing privacy and, and revenue. You see similar stuff in, in ethical companies, like let's say a, a Patagonia that is looking at the environmental sustainability metrics hand in hand with how it's looking at um, financial metrics. And, and I think that the challenge is you need to have the freedom in whatever that organization is to, to make decisions to make less money in order to pursue that um, that social impact usually. So, you know, you need to have the independence from or the support of shareholders. So in our case, because we're, we're completely independent, we can make those trade-offs and say we're going to make less money in order to have more privacy. Um, and, and because the BBC has still significant public license revenue and not just commercial revenue, you can say, oh, we have enough of our own money to have the independence to, to educate and inform. So I, I think the trick of where it works is that A, clarity, you know, what what is your double bottom line? What, you know, obviously one is financial, but what is the social bottom line? Is it inform, educate, is it privacy? And then two, the economic independence, whether that's, you know, support of your shareholders, independence from shareholders, non-commercial revenue that balances out commercial revenue. I, I do think it works. It's hard and is uncommon, but it works. Brian Suda also picks up the point of Patagonia by winning, by losing. There's a, a clothing outfitter, Patagonia. So each year, I think it's on Black Friday, rather than encouraging people to buy the newest item of clothing, they encourage people to not buy something or to buy a used version. And you would think financially that doesn't help them because they're not making money directly. But from a brand point of view and a trust point of view, it is probably more valuable that they stand up for their values than consumerism. So they can win by losing, if that makes any sense. Patagonia is such a good example of a company that align social metrics and financial metrics. I think one of the big things is that 
what we're alluding to is being metrics informed but values driven which is something that David spoke about which I think I'm I think I've got to sort of take his phrase there because I think that's a really good way of looking at things that you understand the picture of what's going on but you're solely driven by values. What you said about human values maybe being like the future, the future way of thinking and and it might be incredibly valuable to angels and venture capitalists and in those sorts of investment spheres. I think it will take time to get there because to be able to start demonstrating the success of human values, it all comes down to changing the metrics into something that is more valuable, which what we're doing is around psychometrics. I'll give you a little bit of update on that. Essentially, companies collect all the data. We create the data on our phones every day. Companies collect it. They're surveilling us, profiling us. It's easy to collect that data because all we have to do is pick up the phone. And I think I spoke about this in a presentation, but we pick up our phones over 150 times in a day on average, which is just staggering, really. In this fast-paced tech environment, this becomes part of like the quick, iterative and lean models of development. For us, it's a long process of using psychometrics to understand what the data really means, to simply understand human values. It took us 18 months of researching, iterating and validating thousands and thousands of people to reach a point of data saturation to enable us to have confidence in our data in that it was truly representative of the population at large. And now we're going through that process again to turn the values into a format that we can measure so into psychometrics, it's a very long process, but it's more enriching to really understand the value that we could potentially have and turning that into a metric. It might be less tangible, but it is incredibly more meaningful. Brian picks up the point of the importance of psychometric testing. Uh, we do a lot of surveys of uh, children in, in schools here in Iceland. And part of that is, is they're all psychometric scales on you know, well-being, student-teacher relationships, these types of things. They're not hardcore academic, how did you score on your last math test? But they're a battery of questions which sort of dance around the topic. And then you know, the OECD and PISA have created uh, scales from these questions that say all these questions create a higher concept called enjoyment of reading or called anxiety, called depression. So rather than directly asking a student on a scale of one to 10, how depressed are you? You ask lots of other questions and statistically they move together and create this, this concept. And it's worked out really, really well, um, both for us and for the schools and for, for the government here in Iceland to sort of track and see you know, how the well-being, how it's changing over time. Um, and the schools can then see they might have a depression problem and jump in. So if you can find a great you know, battery of scales or questions for you know, achieving goals, you know, rather than asking a student or some of your customers or viewers, did you feel after watching that cooking show you can cook better? Yes, no. You, know, you can maybe dance around the topic and say like, you know, have you chosen to eat better? Or you know, there, there's probably uh, sample questions and other things out there, but you know, asking them, indirectly these types of questions and creating these psychometrics uh, 
definitely is very powerful and very useful. These things need to be meaningful. The systems that we build, the reason why we use the internet is that it should be delivering our human values, not just another kind of thing to distract us from what we really actually deep down want. I think having more of a understanding as to what a product or a service has done for somebody is much more meaningful than lots of numbers on a sheet. I understand that those numbers on the sheet will in turn for companies give them more money but it doesn't tell you anything about those people behind it the stories behind it like you said statistics can have completely different meanings and I think the problem is we're in a world unfortunately where tech companies just want those numbers ultimately create habits so that they're getting people to keep picking up their phones every day and this shows in the data when people use their phone for upwards of three hours in a day anything we can move towards making a healthy and a happy society that doesn't have all these problems with screen time that we're seeing in society right now anything that can move us towards that will be good ultimately because we want a healthy and a happy society other than a society that are just looking at their phones every minute of the day because they've been conditioned to by these tech companies. We want something that's more meaningful in life. Thank you for listening, and thanks to Solana Larson, David Jay, Mark Sermon, and Brian Suda for their contributions. This has been a podcast from the Human Values team at BBC Research and Development. For more information, check out our website at BBC co.uk slash rd where you can learn more about human values and you can also listen to more of our podcasts